Life used to be so simple. We talk about safety more generally. So products just need to be safe, end of. But now we're in a world of products needing to be safe, IoT secure and sustainable and also inclusive. You know, it becomes a much more complex landscape. But it, it, that is one of the sort of the risks that we need to buy. And the message is clear for consumers, really. You know, make sure that you buy products from retailers that you know and trust that will take you a long way to make sure that they're safe. But behind the scenes, we need to make sure that standards are are sort of fit for purpose in, in, in that regard. And they really are giving the protection both to legitimate business and also to consumers. You are listening to the Consumers and Standards series from the BSI Education Podcast in association with CPIN, the Consumer and Public Interest Network. Today's episode is on consumers in a digital world. The voice you heard at the top of the episode there was Martin Allen from campaigning charity Electrical Safety First, talking about the four S's of safety, security, sustainability and standards as regards the rise of smart products. We'll hear more from Martin later, and also from other digital technology experts, Liz Cole, Finn Meerstad, and Pete Eisenegger. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs, and you are listening to the fifth episode of the BSI Education podcast, Consumers and Standards series, which is about consumers and the digital world. We are delighted to be bringing it to you in association with our friends at CPIN, the Independent Consumer and Public Interest Network, which, in 2021, is celebrating its 70th anniversary. The Consumer and Public Interest Network, or CPIN, empowers and protects consumers, making everyone's life safer, fairer, and better through effective consumer representation in British standards. Established in 1951, CPIN's trained volunteers participate in the development of standards to highlight key consumer issues, making sure that real-life problems are addressed and the risk of consumer harm is minimized. CPIN believes that all consumers have a right to safe and accessible goods and services, clear information, fair treatment, effective systems of redress, and a healthy environment. CPIN representatives use the United Nations Guidelines for Consumer Protection as the foundation of their work. They sit on hundreds of standards development committees, speaking up for consumers. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash consumers. The consumer voice in standards is incredibly important. This is because standards are everywhere, making consumers' lives safer, fairer and easier. Whether you're using a mobile phone or shopping online, standards behind the scenes are setting good practice for organisations that make goods and provide services. Now, BSI publishes around 3,000 standards every year, and it'd be pretty much impossible for CPIN to get involved in every single one. So instead, resources are focused in areas where CPIN can have the greatest positive impact for consumers, based on five priorities. Sustainability, consumer vulnerability, consumer safety, digital and services. Now, the aim of the BSI Education podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. So this series looks at some of the stories and issues for each of these five priorities. So for this episode, the CPIM priority is digital. The digital age offers opportunities and benefits for consumers, but the speed of innovation and the complex nature of digital ecosystems also poses the risk of new forms of consumer harm. More and more consumer products include a digital element. 
from fitness trackers to toys, from smart energy meters to autonomous vehicles. It is increasingly difficult to be an engaged and informed consumer without being connected, as organizations increasingly rely on digital as a primary tool for account management and communication. Consumers, in particular those who are vulnerable, often find it difficult to understand the complexity of digital products and services. It is unrealistic to expect them to take responsibility for avoiding harm. Suppliers need to ensure that their products are well designed, fit for purpose and safe. CPIN makes sure that the needs of consumers operating in the digital world are considered in the development of all relevant standards. Here's me with a quick reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what we do here on the hashtag BSI pod, and you listen to us via Apple Podcasts, then please consider giving us a five-star rating. It really does make a difference to us being found via search and recommendations. Share us on social media using that hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or previous episodes, or even ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. So this episode looks at how CPIN and standards play an important role in improving outcomes for consumers in the digital world, with four guests. Finn Meerstad, Director of Digital Policy and Energy at the Norwegian Consumer Council. Martin Allen, Technical Manager at Electrical Safety First. Pete Eisenegger, CPIN Rep and Standards Maker. And Liz Cole, Consumer Tech and Digital Policy Consultant. Liz has worked in consumer rights and advocacy in the UK and internationally for over 12 years and is a specialist in the impact of connected digital technology on markets, consumers and regulation. I spoke to Liz about the general shift towards shopping and accessing services online, some of the associated consumer risks, including those that may become more apparent or increased because of COVID, and how standards might help to mitigate them. But in classic hashtag BSI EdPod style, I started by asking Liz about her standards journey. Well, I've always worked in consumer rights and consumer protection. So I started off at Consumer Focus, which was the UK statutory bodies that had particular duties to protect and empower consumers um, across different markets. Um, And then I went on to work at Citizens Advice, um, again, in similar in consumer policy campaigns and research. I've always taken a big interest in the digital world and how it's impacting on, on all of us and all aspects of our lives. Um, and, and I think I got to know the role of standards through my jobs there. After Citizens Advice, I went and worked at Consumers International, which is a umbrella group for all the consumer groups across the world. So you've got um, huge ones like Consumer Reports in the States, right down to really tiny two-person voluntary groups in Argentina. So Consumers International has members across uh, 100 countries and there's about 200 of them. So it's a really interesting and powerful consumer network. And I think it was there that I really realised the power of standards and how useful they are as, as an international tool that works across borders, that can, you know, recognised by the WTO, so useful in trade. And also what was really interesting was how 
they how useful they were for our consumer organizations who were campaigning for different rules and changes in their countries um, in countries where they don't particularly have um, a mature consumer protection regime or indeed any consumer protection regime. So there are quite a few countries where there's no Consumer Protection Act, certainly no ministry or active agencies. And the the, the value there for them was that standards um, could be sort of used um, instead of them drafting regulation from scratch. So I thought that was really interesting and particularly for technical standard, that's, that was really helpful. Although immediately you have the question of are those countries that are using them adequately represented in, in the standards committees? But I think that's that that's you know a bigger issue that um, in, in terms of development. And I think at Consumers International, I met people who'd been involved in setting things like the mobile payment standard, um, energy efficiency standard. So really practical, tangible things that that consumer groups were doing alongside industry and policymakers. Um, so I thought it was a really interesting model, not one that I'd known huge amounts about. So I had standards were sort of on the back burner while I carried on with the, with the digital work I was doing there. But since becoming a, an independent consultant, I've, I've worked in standards a, a bit more. And at the moment, I'm working with ANEC, who are the European group for um, who represent consumers within the EU setup of standards committees. And I'm sitting as the representative on JCT... J- uh, JTC21 on artificial intelligence. We love our acronyms of the standards world, don't we? We yeah. love our acronyms. <laughs> so I'm getting quite good at all now. So JTC21 AI, which is the body, that, which is a committee that's been set up to develop the standards which will be delivering and implementing the artificial intelligence proposed regulation. So that's a really, really big deal, a very challenging area. Um, it's pretty difficult for standards, I think, because... Um, they're using technical product standards for a technology that's actually not yet fully understood and where values and ethics are playing quite a big part in how it's rolled out. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's um, I've started that this year. And so I'm now for the first time actually sitting within the committees and seeing firsthand how the negotiations and inputs all work. I've also uh, this year um have became part of CPIN steering group. Um, this is this is really bringing a more strategic view and advice to the activities of CPIN. Um, and I think my experience internationally, but also working on digital, and I've done quite a lot of research and insight pieces into what's coming next. So what's around the corner for consumers and for the world. And I think that's something that um, that CPIN liked and and so invited me to help um, be part of their steering group. Now, Liz, with a sort of, I think it's fair to say we have had a, a general shift here towards shopping and using services online. That's the general direction of travel. I suppose what I'm interested first is to find out what you think is the potential for consumer harm because of that general move towards, as I say, to move towards shopping and using those services online. Um, well, I think, I mean, first of all, I'm not, um, you know, anti-technology and, and things like that. I really love it and I'm quite, I'm really into it. And I think it's fascinating the way that it's changing things. But some of the changes are not great. But I think what's interesting are the things that make um, the digital services and the digital transition so convenient, so quick, so, you know, fun in many ways to use are also the things that are causing the problem um, so what I mean by that is when you have services where you're um, 
where it's not clear exactly who's delivering it. So it's all be, so maybe Deliveroo or on Amazon, you're, you've got one a one-stop shop where you can get things really quickly, but you're not quite clear what's going on behind the scenes. And, you know, generally that's okay. I mean, people don't face, you know, people can do a lot of shopping and, and not face many problems. But if things go wrong, um, it can be really problematic. A lot of that comes from not knowing who's responsible for different bits of, of the journey um, or how you might get in touch with somebody to get it put right or who's really behind delivering delivering the services. So I know um, some consumer groups recently have did a sweep of products on, on um, online platforms. So that's where there's an intermediary, which is selling between producers and to consumers. And they found, they, they took a selection of, electrical goods and 66% of them were deemed unsafe so they didn't meet european safety standards now if you were shopping on one of those platforms and buying a you know a new charger or a hairdryer whatever you w- you would probably quite reasonably assume that it was being sold to you and it would be meeting like your national or regional safety regulations but that's not the case and i think that's where some ha- there's the type of harms that can occur when people are assuming things are safe because they look safe and you, that's what you're used to. But what you're actually getting isn't isn't meeting all of those background checks and things that you'd expect. Um, so that's one way in which I think there's real potential for harm. Um, I think also it, there's, there's this sense of not always knowing what's exactly real online. So this comes across in obviously you know people would talk a lot about this with social media or with fake news and the impact that that has on people's mental health or on political systems etc. When you're a consumer it's I suppose it's more things like um is this review real or is this product as it's described um so and 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 things like that and it again it's really difficult um, for for people to be able to to sometimes pick apart what's real and what's not, and that can then affect um, the products you buy. Whether you buy something that's low standard and lose your money, or you can't return it, etc. Um, and I think the other thing that this is a sort of personal bugbear of mine is this: just not being able to access people or a human to get things put right. So I think that's that's a huge one for um. For, for some of the harms people can face um, when things do go wrong, it's it's often pretty difficult to find the right person to, or any person to talk to, to to get it put right. I, I absolutely hear you. I know the um, I do try and take advantage of the chat functions, but often with those, you have th- three or four layers of bot to get through before you say, "Do you want to speak to a human?" Yes, I would like to speak to a human, please. Which is what I wanted in the first place. So that's really, really frustrating, isn't it? I think everyone, I think everyone would be with you on that. Mm-hmm. I just wonder, Liz. Um, we've all lived through COVID over the past uh, the eighteen months or so, and I just wonder, sort of, to what extent COVID has had an impact on these potential harms and vulnerabilities. You know, this, towards this general shift towards shopping and, and using services online. What, what's what's been the impact of COVID? Do you think COVID? Do you think? I mean, it certainly um, increased people's reliance um, on the, on online services, from groceries to you know um, video calling your your families or for work. Lots of people used online grocery shopping for the first time, and then existing users um, up their growth as well. Um, I know it's obviously driven people online, and I think I suppose it's whether that was always done by choice or by necessity. I mean, either way. It was fantastic. It was there and it enabled services to get to people in good time 
um, and, and enabled people to connect. I think what's quite interesting is it's come at a time when there's been quite a, a big increase in scrutiny from regulators, um, journalists, charities and campaigners on the way that large tech companies work, um, how they, for example, treat our data, um, how they target us, um, how much of them, how they tend to dominate markets and not leave you with many other places to go. I mean, it's sometimes quite it's quite hard sometimes to buy something that's not on Amazon if you're looking for just a kind of simple a simple purchase. So at the same time that we're really relying heavily or having to rely really heavily on these on digital, consumers are waking up to some of the downsides like fake reviews or you just mentioned, you know, not really being able to get hold of anyone and, and speaking to a, a robot. Um, and, and also regulation and, and is coming from all different areas. So I think that it's not it's going off your question a bit, but I think it's COVID. There's one narrative, which is that, you know, everything's gone so digital, we're never going back. Um, and, it, and it's jumped ahead. And I certainly think that, you know, it has really consolidated its impact on people. On the other hand, with that becomes um, the biggest levels of scrutiny we've, we've seen, um, which have been growing for a long time and are now becoming quite mainstream. Um, so I think that's quite an interesting thing to watch. Um, in terms of more specifics, uh, it's really some of the things I mentioned before. So we saw a big rise in fake medicines, um, low quality personal protective equipment, um, all of that 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 grew a lot during the pandemic. Um, the union unite. I don't know if you've heard they they investigated um, items like toilet roll and face masks and hand wash on Amazon and found that most of them they said at least were there for at least double their usual price between March and July when the first lockdown was was in effect. So. That was on on Amazon. So you that's price gouging. Now we we've probably all heard of price gouging, but when it happens at that scale, and when you're in a crisis, mm. and when you really really need these things, that kind of stuff can can happen. And the only way the only time they're taken down is when people like Unite or people go and report it to to a to a large platform like Amazon. So again, it goes back to what I was saying before. There isn't that behind the scenes check to make sure that things are, are okay for consumers. But I, I think we need to remember that, you know, for, for some people and, you know, for a lot of us, it's been really good. Um, if you like and you had time to watch lots of movies and content, then, you know, you're going to be really valuing those digital services. If you like doing your banking only online and never having to queue up, um, you're going to you're going to be really enjoying and valuing the fact that these things are online. As much as you value that, things can still go wrong. So there's a really a good example I heard today about digital only banks who have offered a great service, really popular, really innovative, really quick, and people have really enjoyed and valued using them over the traditional bank. But there's been quite a few cases of um, consumers being shut out of their bank accounts, their bank accounts just being frozen with no explanation. And they think that the reason for this is that an, an algorithm, an, an AI algorithm, is interpreting the banking regulations on suspicious activity on your account a bit too strongly and so whereas in the old days you may have had a call from someone at your bank to say look you know we've seen this transaction is that you is that fine and, and the problem would be sorted 
when you've only got the digital um the digital technologies behind the scenes making those decisions they can be really blunt people are frozen out of their accounts not able to access their cash so i just always would put the caution that yes there's loads of great stuff within the digital transition and digital revolution but we shouldn't lose sight of of the fact that things can go wrong quite quickly and it's going to be really useful if those things can be thought about before the services are developed or as they're developed. And again, that's where standards could really help to think through how you might deal with with situations that come up like that. Um, obviously, we have a we, you know over the last you know ten fifteen years, we there's been this general shift to move towards uh, shopping and and using services online. COVID has sort of accelerated that change, hasn't it? Because we had to do more online. I just wonder because of that quick acceleration, has that made things particularly challenging for consumers? I think it would depend. I mean, it depends where you were before. So I think um, if you were one of those people, you know, maybe having to bank online for the first time or doing your grocery shopping for the first time it's likely that you would um maybe be slightly older or in a lower income bracket so that just stepping into the um the digital consumer world um could it could have been difficult and particularly at a time when when things were very stressful um so i think but i think it really depends on who you are i mean for others it would have been less of a shift um, even perhaps a welcome shift. So it, it, it's, I think, you know, if you like watching movies and had a lot of downtime to, to be spending doing that, then I think it, you know, it would be fine. But I, so I think it really, it really does depend. I mean, I think it, it definitely shone a light on people who didn't have digital access, um, who, you know, sort of anti-poverty charities um, were well aware of how much more, um, you pay as a consumer if you're not online. So research, I think, I think by the Resolution Foundation and places like Citizens Advice, have always been really aware of how expensive it is not to be getting the direct debit deals or those particular online deals. Um, you just end up spending more. So the people with with the least end up spending more. And I think that then be- probably became a lot more apparent to people if you're having to do things online or spend a lot more time online. So if you don't have your great you know, fixed contract with your mobile, but you're relying on data and pay as you go, then then those things, you know, take a big slice out of your budget. So I think those harms really possibly became a lot more apparent as had people had to become more, more reliant on digital. And in terms of the role of standards then, um, you know, what role, what role do they play in helping to mitigate some of these risks that you've talked about for consumers? I th- again, I think standards are really helpful. But, I mean, going back to what I said um, right at the beginning, I think it's completely fair enough that consumers just expect things to be done in a in a certain way because that so they expect reviews to be genuine. They would expect safety checks to happen, and they would expect problems to be sorted and things to be going on behind the scenes. I think what standards really do is then make that real so where those things aren't happening they provide a framework for saying look this is how you can do it in a digital environment so we're seeing some standards which are you know which are dealing with new problems so the online review standard um is talking very much about how you the process that you would go through to have verified authenticated and genuine reviews on your site um and how you would check for that how you would take down ones that were not genuine, how, what would be a fair way to to wait and rate them, etc. 
So that's dealing with a new specific. And then there are other standards which deal with things which have been around for a long time and cause problems. So terms and conditions being a really good example of that. So we're all aware that the small print um, has been an issue for, for, for decades, but it used to be something that you probably only um, were aware of or worried about when you were buying insurance or, you know, taking out um, car hire or something. Now, suddenly you're engaging in numerous terms and conditions every day, absolutely really long, really complicated, really difficult to use, but you're entering into those contracts as a consumer in the digital world all the time. So the, the standards um, that, that BSI have proposed and which has now been accepted by ISO into standardising terms and conditions for clarity and to make sure that they're easy that they're easy for people, that can help put that trust back um, because at the moment, you know, no one's reading them and there could be anything in there. So I think that standardising um, and, of course, getting then encouraging companies and businesses to use those standards and that they are the thing that will help drive drive trust is going to really help consumers. And I suppose as someone who has worked in this field for a long time now, what, what do you see as the value of CPIN? I think CPIN's um, quite unique in the way that it it's formalised consumer representation in, into the standards body. So having now worked in Europe, I've, there's, there's hardly any countries which have that model in their standards development organisations. Um, so to have... Um, to have this network which is actively feeding in um, consumer angles and perspectives and wants right at the point when standards are developed is something I think we should really celebrate and really encourage in, in other national bodies. Did you know? Information overload. Recent research from the consumer organisation WITCH found that typical terms and conditions for online shopping and social media sites are harder to understand than Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. And yet, the average time to accept T's and C's online is just eight seconds. Now, earlier, Liz Cole talked about some of the consumer risks and benefits as we move towards buying more products and accessing more services online. But as the vast majority of us make that shift, what about the issue of consumer data collected by companies and organisations? I picked up the issue of the what, how, why and when of consumer data collection, including the use of digital twins, with Finn Meerstad. Finn is Director of Digital Policy and Energy at the Norwegian Consumer Council, where he leads the development of ethical digital policies in an attempt to convince governments and companies to improve their policies. So Finn, what's, what's been your standards journey? You know, where, where did it start for you and where are you now? Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me as well. Um, well, I've been working uh, previously, previous to this job, I was working in Brussels, uh, working on environmental protection standards. So working on um, emission standards and reducing NOx emissions in particular. So working for a company that was providing um, solutions on how to reduce NOx. So that was really interesting to see how the European Union um, with his rulemaking uh, abilities could create standards that would be across Europe and have impact for uh, millions of people and the environment as well. Um, but recently, the last eight years, I've been working at the Norwegian Consumer Council, where we have been working on exposing how companies are not following 
the expected standards um, of their services. So that could be consumers obviously expect that their data will be protected when they use a digital service. Uh, they expect uh, companies to abide by what they believe is the rules. And I think our research has shown that um, companies are sadly very often not following the expected standards whether that is in relation to basic consumer rights online or uh, data protection, privacy, or security even. So we've done lots of research into terms of conditions and privacy and security, and obviously pushing for better standards and better rules in this area. Now, you mentioned there about about consumer expectation, and obviously this episode is around uh, the digital world. So so how and when is consumer data collected when we shop and access services online? It's collected more and more all the time. It could be collected from your smartwatch. Uh, it's often collected through your apps on your phone. And what people don't think about and are not aware of, and I was certainly not aware of this before I started working in this field, is that one thing is the, the sort of data you input yourself. So, you know, it could be your uh, photo on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok, uh, but also research our research and other people's research has shown that these apps are also extraordinarily hungry and they collect data passively from your phone. So that could be collecting your location data in the background. It could be harvesting your contact lists. It could be sending unique identifiers from your phone to marketers. And what we see is that this data is then passed on to hundreds, potentially thousands of commercial actors who are trading in our data. And this also happens when you visit a website, for example. Um, companies can place cookies, small um, pieces of software on your computer, mm -hmm. and then will collect uh, information about the website you visit, where your mouse is hovering, uh, whether you buy something or not, etc. And this is also often combined with other types of data that companies are collecting about you that could be purchase history, that could be publicly available information, um, combined with um, sort of comparing your digital profile with people that look like you so that companies can make predictions about your future behavior. And obviously all of this uh, happens generally without anyone's knowledge and also without really anyone a, being able to to control this in a meaningful way. It's interesting you say that because I, I was going to ask you, you know, how aware are, do you think consumers are of how this personal data is collected and used and, and how aware are they how it could affect you know, other parts of their lives? I think people... Uh, I think when I speak to people, people are aware that something's happening, right? You could be searching for shoes or tra traveling uh, <laughs> after COVID. Hopefully you can tra travel again and you're searching for a trip to Barcelona or somewhere and you'll suddenly see an ad for the product or service you just searched for. And I so I think people are aware that things are happening. I don't think people are aware of the extent of the data collection. And I don't think people are aware of all the potential consequences this data collection could could have. and But I must also say um, awareness is really, really important. But this is maybe one of those fields where consumers cannot fix this by themselves because um, the data collection is happening uh, sort of invisibly. And you can't really open the hood of an app and look inside and see, where is my data going? Uh, I want to stop it. And there are no real meaningful controls. Um, uh, in the apps, generally speaking, uh, and on the phones, generally speaking, to make you empowered to to stop this kind of tracking. It is possible to reduce it, but uh, it's uh, quite impossible to completely reduce the kind of data uh, collection that I just described. 
Can you give us any sort of concrete examples of, of what businesses do with this, this information they're gathering? So the, the typical primary use is to serve us ads. So they collect this data and they make rich digital profiles. We call them digital twins, for example. So that means that there's a Matthew profile, uh, you, a profile of you in many, many companies. They will then bid on, whenever you visit an app or a website, they will bid on showing you an ad. Um, and depending on your profile, they will be thinking, oh, you're maybe a an attractive consumer in certain areas, and they will show you an ad that they think will influence you to do a purchase, for example. But it could also be the other way around, so that they say, hey, Matthew, he's, um, he's a bit of a risk taker. He does this and this on his uh, spare time. We're not going to target ads for health insurance to this guy because I think he's going to be a liability for us. And in effect, you're being discriminated because you're not receiving offers, for example, for health insurance or mortgages or potentially even jobs. We have examples in the US where uh, it's been uncovered that minorities, for example, have not been shown ads for certain types of jobs. Women have been excluded from job ads. Um, housing ads are only shown to white people for in certain areas, et cetera, et cetera. So these profiles um, are made to, to um, how do you say, influence us. And the basic use is to show us ads, but the wider consequences can be much, much wider. What, what sort of, I suppose, what what are those risks? I mean, you mentioned there about about advertisements for jobs. I think Facebook was in the was was sort of um, there was a controversial issue with Facebook last week around putting particular advertisements in in front of certain people. But what are what are the additional risks then about with, with companies using uh, this data to influence our consumer choice and decision making? Well, one of the things that I'm really or that we're really afraid of is the ability to manipulate people, uh, because when you Collect data. I mean, you could say that data from one app is not very revealing, but when you look at all the pieces of the puzzle combined, uh, so all the, all your digital activities from when you wake up in the morning until you go to bed, um, and you compare it to people that look like you, it's really easy to discover your weaknesses. And I can, for example, use myself as an example. So there are probably many digital twins of me out there. And let's say I'm working for, or you're working for a gambling company, and you see that. A lot of our customers have a similar profile to Finn. They are have this, these interests and they're spending a lot of money on our service. But they, they realize, oh, but Finn is not a customer. They won't know my name, but they will, you know, there will be an ID connected to my to, to my profile. And so we want to reach Finn and people that look like him, but who are not yet customers. And let's trigger his gambling addiction because I can see that with 98% probability, people like Finn have a latent gambling addiction. Uh, um, problem. So they can then target me with very specific ads, me and maybe hundreds or thousands of people that have a similar profile to me and give me offers that I cannot refuse. Uh, so that could be giving me a hundred pounds to, to gamble and then get me hooked. And this way, when you can identify people's vulnerabilities, whether it is gambling or alcohol, or it is anything else really, um, or the fact that you're not very price sensitive, you can target all kinds of products and services uh, to you when you are at your most vulnerable. And now that when it is possible to monitor people's sleep and people's um, habits, you can basically predict people's moods, whether you're depressed or whether you're happy. Um, it is possible to target these messages or these ads uh, towards you when you are at your most vulnerable. And we are afraid you know, with the uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning that 
the capabilities of manipulating consumers will be uh, just growing. And our natural defenses um, are basically being worn down when you can target people based on their vulnerabilities. In the old days, you could see uh, maybe a commercial and it would be obvious to you that it is a commercial. It's an advertisement in a magazine. And you can sort of put up your natural defense and say, hey, this is an advertisement. Okay, I can choose to take this information on board and make a purchase, but I can also choose not to. But with any, when with everything sort of micro-targeted, it is becoming increasingly difficult. I just wonder how. I mean, in in many respects, what you described there is, is quite terrifying. In a, in a sense, we are uh, being constantly monitored and watched without our or um, and us providing data without us realizing it. I just wonder how. How much of a growing issue this is? I mean, is, is this accelerated particularly over the last two or three years? I mean, when when was the genesis of this? And I suppose, where are we now, do you think, in, in the growth of this data collection? Um, I think this has been going on for, for to a lesser or larger extent, for about 10, 15 years. But obviously, with the emergence of the smartphone, which is in our pocket, super advanced computers, basically, that can, you know, easily decide uh, whether you're walking or biking or in a car. It can determine what um, what floor you're in, in a, in a building. It's sending out constant signals to, 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 to other machines. So the, the surveillance capabilities have increased a lot. And we've seen also the business models that are involved in this are growing a lot. So, you know, you have the Facebooks and the Googles, of course, but you also have thousands of other companies involved in this. And also with more devices connected to our bodies, um, making it possible to monitor our every move and every breath, really. Um, this has become a huge industry. Um, we've had several reports where we sort of went in and hacked apps, looked at the data flows, we've uh, uncovered where the data goes. Uh, we filed a legal complaint last year against a dating app called Grinder, where we exposed that the, the app was sharing, in our view, um, people's sexual orientation with marketers in addition to sharing their location data. And all this can be, of course, misused. And i am talked about discrimination, obviously one area, manipulation another, but it when it comes to issues such as religion or political orientation or sexual orientation, people can it can real life consequences. And or just earlier this year, uh, it was a Catholic priest in the U.S. lost his job because um, it was exposed that he was using the Grinder app, um, and obviously then not uh, living in accordance to uh, the rules of the church. So it was used to basically out him as as potentially gay, and he lost his job and his life was in ruins. So you know. Uh, when data is being misused as well, um, that is a real uh, threat towards consumers. Just switching back to, to the collection there, you mentioned the data collection, you mentioned a sort of surveillance. And I know that uh, as as a Norwegian Consumer Council, you've done a couple of reports into into smart devices, and particularly around the issues of children. Can you tell Can you tell us about those? Yeah. So a few years ago, we decided to um, see the, st the state of affairs on, on children's issues. And uh, we looked into some smart toys um, targeted at children. And our expectation was that at least children would have better protections because they have, by law, better protections. And obviously, it's quite clear that children are a vulnerable group, uh, children and youth. So we uh, looked at a, a few smart toys, so internet-connected toys, and we looked at some smart watches, internet-connected watches, basically working as, as mobile phones for children on their wrists. And what we uncovered was, um, at least in a smart toy ex example, widespread data sharing of children's data, but also 
large security vulnerabilities, uh, making it possible for people to hack these toys uh, and get and possibly communicate with the children. And also with the smartwatches, uh, with some of the watches we looked at, there were massive massive security uh, problems. And this basically highlighted the fact that we're completely um, sort of at the beginning of developing good standards for security, uh, ICT security or cybersecurity in Europe and the world. And we basically saw that there are very few um, common standards being applied by the industry here. So that's an area where we really hope that um, uh, rules and standards will will improve in the, in the years to come because with everything being connected online, it will make consumers very vulnerable to to misuse and abuse if we don't get this right soon. I suppose that's the heart of the issue. Actually, that's what I want to ask you that question. How how can standards help protect you know protect consumers in terms of the collection and misuse of their data? I think you, there's um, I, I'm you know I'm not a standards expert, but I think there's a you know you need to have some legal standards so that you can hold uh, companies accountable, and I think you need some how to say more practical standards that can instruct companies on how to do things right because I think in many cases, uh, it's not evil intent by companies when they have poor security, they just don't know how to do it right. So I think that uh, standards can go above and beyond. Um, the minimum standards of the law, for example. And I think that's where they could play a good role. Uh, in security, in particular in security, uh, I think there is a much more joint interest in doing it right. Uh, in the privacy area, there is maybe sometimes conflicting interest because there will be an in interest of companies to collect as much data as possible. Whereas in, in the interest of the consumer, it might be that le- less data is collected. But in the security field, I have the feeling that almost everyone wants security to be better. And also, I think that would be very good for society because it will create economies of scale. You would have uh, companies being able to deliver security services to other companies. So if you manage to build good standards around uh, ICT security, I think it would be um, a benefit for everyone. Because these consumer devices, just to give you one example, are being used in massive hacks against governments, for example. You can direct uh, printers, for example, to take down government websites. So there's a clear link between the consumer field and also national security here. I think um, I mean, you mentioned there about the relationship really between the law and obviously, and the sort of legal framework in order to to protect consumers from harm, and then and then standards uh, in order to develop uh, good practice in in the sector, and obviously they need to work they need to work in harmony. I just wonder, as a you know, you've 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 set out um, some of the issues here that the, we're all facing. I just wonder, from a standards perspective, again, if we were trying to bite off a particular part of the cake here, where where would we where are standards do you think required? more immediately in this particular area in terms of either collection or use of consumer data? I think uh, ICT security obviously is an area where I think it would be very useful. I think within privacy and data protection, I think standards could be helpful in, I want to say, in in some sort of... um, you have, without getting into all the specifics, you have principles in the GDPR, like the, the data protection framework we have in Europe, where you have, for example, data minimization as a principle. And maybe there could be standards developed um, that can help uh, companies implement that better. What does it mean in practice? What is security by design? What is privacy by design? What are good practices in this area? And you can go from area to area and develop good standards 
for companies to implement uh, and service providers to implement, I think that probably could be very helpful. Uh, but I do think it's really important when you create these standards that they don't become the uh, lowest common denominator and as a result create uh, creates more uh, loopholes or or basically makes companies go not longer than they intended to do. So I think, you know, it's important that standards are transparent, they have consumer participation, um, and that they're not co-opted by only industry interests. Now, towards the end of my conversation with Finn, we spoke about smart toys and watches for children. And it's on the subject of standards and smart products that I spoke to Martin Allen, technical manager at Electrical Safety First, who we heard from at the top of the episode. Martin represents consumer safety interests on a range of British, European and international standards committees. Before we talked about what is meant by smart products, Martin told me about how standards have become such an important part of his working life. Well, uh, really, from from leaving school, I started my working life uh, as an underground electrician where we had a coal industry. And, you know, that's clearly a safety critical environment. And so, you know, safety was drilled into me at a very early stage, the need to follow rules as I thought they were then, you know, which really is standards and also legislation. And then, you know, from there, I I went into the engineering uh, sector of the insurance industry. So I was carrying out inspections on large electrical equipment uh, for insurance purposes and also for legislation purposes and also doing lots of wiring installation inspections in mines, quarries, petrochemical sites, banks, supermarkets, the whole raft of locations. And that was all, again, all to all to standards. So my interest in standards and safety primarily was, was sort of embedded in me from, from a really early stage. And from, from that side, then I, I sort of joined Electrical Safety Council, as it was called then, uh, 15 years ago. And, you know, as technical director, then, you know, my responsibility and my passion, really, to make sure that we do sort of make sure consumers are protected, and that's from the products they're buying. So again, making sure that standards are indeed fit for purpose to match the products. Uh, and also from the installation side as well, I'll continue that, that, that interest from a charity, we look at installations as well as as well as products. So we we use standards on a day-to-day basis uh, to sort of support our product investigations. So we'll pick on various things to look at, whether it's uh, mobile phone chargers or kitchen equipment, health and beauty. And we, we sort of screen those against standards, uh, primarily because we think there may be a gap and we'll test that out as part of that investigation. And then if that is indeed proven to be true, then we'll use that evidence to take back to the standards committees to, to you know improve that standard from a safety purpose. Uh, so, you know, standards are you know, really critical to the to the work we do in our organization because they provide that that evidence base. That the challenge we have, and many of people listening in all have the same appreciation, no doubt, is that standards, there are lots and lots of them, and it's hard to keep keep pace. You know, the the speed of innovation that we keep seeing now is sort of, you know, it's really difficult and challenging to make sure that standards are are up there and providing the necessary protections. Uh, we've seen, you know, connected products that we'll sort of talk about shortly. We've seen sustainability, including right to repair. There's sort of moves around making sure standards are more inclusive. So all that work to feed into the standards development work is, is just really, really challenging. But, you know, we are committed to make sure that consumer representation in those standards from an electrical perspective is indeed there. You know, that's one of the main things that we do as an organization and, and personal passion from my side. 
Now, you mentioned there about the fast pace of technology, and I want to ask, ask you about that, because one of the sort of changes that we've seen in terms of products over the last 10 or 15 years has been the rise of smart products. So what do we mean by smart products and, and how prevalent are they becoming in our lives? Yeah, I mean, everything seems to be smart nowadays, doesn't it? We've got smart meters, you know, smartphones, smart watches, smart TVs. But increasingly, we're seeing more and more normal domestic appliances becoming increasingly connectable. And I say connectable because they, you know, they've got a smart capability, but many connected products at the moment are not actually connected. And I'll use myself as an example. I have one of these sort of large American-style fridge freezers, and it's got connectability. Uh, but I haven't chose to connect it because I'm not seeing the purpose. However, other products that we see now being developed, that they that their connectability is actually providing a real safety benefit, and I'll get into that in, in, in a short while. But you know, other smart products that we see and people will probably, probably uh, sort of appreciate and have in their homes will be the the rise of the voice assistant. So you know, the Amazon's Alexa, the Google Home, Apple Siri. So these voice assistants are, you know, becoming more and more prevalent. And, you know, initially they were a bit of a gimmick and you could ask old Alexa, you know, what the weather's going to be like or where the nearest pizza restaurant is and so on. But, you know, we can now use those devices to connect with products. So you can ask Alexa to switch the, the lights on or to control the temperature. Some of these are for convenience issues, but, you know, we need to make sure safety is part of this journey as well. And from the from the, the the connected sort of product evolution, you know, from my my side of things, I'm really finding of interest some of the challenges that we've had in product safety around product registration, product recalls, you know, to intervene when things go wrong. Connectability, digital products actually sort some of those problems out. If you can you can connect it, you can interact with it in many cases. And I suppose the obvious example of that would be. Uh, the Samsung uh, Note 7 issue that was a few years ago, they had some design flaws with the battery and they needed to recall those products. And because they were connected, Samsung were able to uh, interact with their consumers who had those those affected products. They were initially sending text messages to say, there's a problem, take it back to the retail and they'll sort of replace it for you. They took further action because not everybody sort of chose to do that because they love their phone, you know, so... Uh, they were able then to change the characteristics of the phone to reduce the charging capacity to put less stress on the battery that was the orig origin of the, 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 the problem and causing those fires. And ultimately, for those consumers who still didn't sort of take any action, they could switch the phones off. So a real success story in sort of a manufacturer taking sensible steps, but really to sort out a serious safety issue. And so all these connected products that we're like, we're starting to see and we'll see more of in the next few years, you know, as well as making life more convenient, which is probably the reason why most people buy them, but they have huge safety benefits. You know, some of these products have got the capability to sort of self-monitor. So when, you know, when the operation is going, going out of tolerance, you know, whether it's a motor bearing that's failing, leading to overheating, whether it's a poor connection or, or, or something else, then the, the machine can change its characteristics and ultimately switch off. Or it could send an alert to the consumer via their, by, by their phone or their tablet. You know, all these benefits are just, just protecting people uh, in their homes, either unwittingly or, 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 or you know, by in, involving you through your, through your phone, for example. So some real safety benefits. And the, the, the last thing on that side is sort of from uh, 
you know, people being able to stay in their homes so much longer, you know, vulnerable people, older people, instead of going into care, connected technology can sort of monitor their whereabouts to make sure they're safe in that environment. You can interact with them, talk to them and all that. So, you know, some real sort of powerful safety benefits from connected technology. You, you mentioned there some of those some of those benefits uh, and there's the rise of the smart products and that, that connectivity. I just wonder for the other side, sort of flipping on its head, any sort of actual and potential risk for consumers of sort of rise of smart products and connectivity? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are several that spring to mind. And, and one of them is linked to the net zero agenda, which is, you know, on the news on, on almost a daily basis. And there's something that's called sort of demand-side response. And, and ultimately, that's trying to take advantage of cheaper tariffs, you know, when, when things are sort of cheaper to use. And products themselves are, are then either able to do it themselves because they think they know best or the consumer might, might in, in, uh, initiate the decision. But products being used at different times of the day, so they may be used at night or when people are out of the house to take advantage of cheaper running costs which is understandable and, you know, energy bills are, 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 seem to be going through the roof on a daily basis. So, you know, whilst I'm not saying that connected technology being used at those times of the day is going to lead to more fires, but it could impact on on, on higher uh, numbers of people being, you know, seriously injured or, or worse, because if you're asleep, then clearly you're less able to, to react or even be alerted in that regard. So it's essential that, you know, we make sure that the products are as safe as they can be. Standards uh, adapt to that. That we include the use of more technology to monitor uh, any any sort of uh, events that may lead to an unsafe situation. Uh, and the rest is left to sort of promoting education of consumers. Because for many many years, self included, we've said don't use these things at night or when you get out of the house. And clearly, connected technology, uh, you know, is likely to totally go against that and we will see things being used more at night the other the other uh, sort of potential risk for consumers is interoperability the race to market and lots of actors coming into this space and not just the uh, the large brands that we we would know but there's there's many many products now entering the market of the cheaper variety they've got connectability and so it's imperative that we have these products being able to uh, interoperate correctly and it's not just so it doesn't work and it becomes more of a frustration and you think you've wasted your money. But if, you, if interoperability is not correct, then you can find that a safety reliance isn't there. And we could, again, lead to sort of an unsafe situation. If one product is relying on another or it's interacting with something the way it shouldn't, then we could we could have safety safety issues that, that come to come to the floor, whether it's disabling a, a, a protection device or or some other reason, then, you know, that's something we need to make sure we get right. And again, it's the speed of innovation that sort of impacts on that. So we need to make sure, you know, standards and, you know, enforcement, you know, not just the standards themselves are indeed in place so we don't sort of get into that space. And the other obvious one is around, uh, you know, hacking into into products. And I don't just mean so that they can hack into the product to see steal your, your your sort of personal details from a privacy point of view, but hacking can lead to safety issues as well. You know, to disable uh, safety features. We've seen that in a few few examples. Uh, an automatic sort of uh, door locking system that you could sort of uh, interact with with your phone. But we've seen some some example where. Somebody's been able to hack into that system and unlock every product that was connected to the, the cloud system, you know, and, and there are other examples. Most of them are, are hypothetical, but there are real use cases now that are coming 
coming to the floor. And so we need to make sure that products are as secure as they can be. You know, before, life used to be so simple. We talk about safety more generally. So products just need to be safe, end of. But now we're in a world of products needing to be safe, IoT secure, and sustainable, and also inclusive. You know, it becomes a much more complex landscape. But it, it, that is one of the sort of the risks that we need to buy. And the message is clear for consumers, really. You know, make sure that you buy products from retailers that you know and trust. That'll take you a long way to make sure that they are safe. But behind the scenes, we need to make sure that standards are are sort of fit for purpose in, in, in that regard. And they really are giving the protection both to legitimate business and also to consumers. I like your, your three S's there. We've got safe, secure and sustainable. And then you brought in the fourth one, which is standards. So in terms of, in terms of standards then, you know, what, what role do standards play or, or will they be playing in the design and development of these smart products and, and connected, uh, connected devices? I mean, standards have provided that sort of benchmark, that level playing field for many, many years, you know, to, to get really new entrants into that space where they can have confidence that they're putting uh, products on the market that are indeed safe and, and compliant. And it'd be the same in the digital space. I mentioned before about, you know, the speed of innovation. It makes standards development more challenging. So we need a more flexible approach to standards development, but also I think for me, standards, certainly in the digital world, is we need standards to focus more on on design, do more upfront, uh, where, you know, to, to look at uh, at the safety aspect, at the inclusive aspect, at the sustainability even, and also the digital IoT security. Upfront, do as much as you can in design because that lessens the chance of something going wrong uh, further down and shortening the, the lifespan life cycle unnecessarily. You know, we need standards that are able to support products from cradle to grave. And, you know, my, my, my sort of view is that when we look at standards at the moment, and we've got different pieces of legislation that sort of control the policy aspects, both from sustainability, from sort of IoT security and traditional safety. But, and, and standards are falling, falling off that. You know, we've got the low voltage directive for electrical equi- equipment, then we've got the radio equipment directive, uh, and, and regulations as we get back into the UK. And, and, and all these things need different sort of standards. And what, what I'm looking at with a digital product, it's like a fridge freezer is a fridge freezer. But if it's a fridge freezer with connectability, then it, it covers two pieces of legislation. And we need to make sure that standards are keep coping with both sides. You know, we're covering the traditional safety, we're covering the, connect, the issues to do with IoT security and, and also sustainability and the other things that I mentioned, and there's arguably an exercise that's needed, and we're sort of looking into this, to do a, a gap analysis of what, what standards are actually covering uh, and, and and see where we can bridge any gaps that exist. Arguably the need for a horizontal standards that are going to address those issues, and then we can deal with the sort of vertical standards thereafter. But, you know, standards play a real important part to provide that sort of that starting point, that, that level playing field and that sort of ability to get new entrants into the space. But they also provide, of course, that, that, that uh, checklist for enforcement authorities. If there is you know, a reported safety issue, they, they rely heavily on a standard to see, well, I've got this product, I'm checking against the standard requirements. And if they don't match, then clearly there's an issue and they can sort of use that to take action against that, that particular manufacturer. When we don't have a standard, of course, then it presents more challenges. The, the only other way to look at it then is to go back to the manufacturing in question and say, 
you need to prove to me that your product is indeed safe. And the example I would give for that is when we saw uh, hoverboards as they started to fl- flood the market a couple of years ago. And, you know, there was no standard for a hoverboard at that time. In fact, it's still not over the line uh, yet. But in the race to sort the problem out, because we were seeing fires from those things, then in the absence of a standard, the authorities were obliged to go to the manufacturers and say, you need to prove to me that your product is indeed safe. And that's the way to deal with it. But yeah, coming back to the role of standards, it's that they play a vital part and will continue to do so. The challenge for me and others in this space is that we need to make sure that we we think more broadly on making sure that you know we we cope with the speed of innovation because i think you know it, it it's it's a different place now than it was 10 15 years ago just i've got to pick up on martin you just said the word hoverboard so is that coming will i be a, will my children be commuting to school on hoverboards in the future yeah, good question. I mean, hoverboards a couple of three years ago were arguably, uh, a, you know, an advertising sort of uh, issue, really, because they didn't really hover. They were just a fancy roller skate, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, it, there are some videos that you can see online of, of real hoverboards. And I'm sure in the future, we we will. I, I, I'm, uh, you know, uh, always open minded. Every day, some new innovation has sort of been thrown at me. Somebody will send me a link and say, like, wow, can they really do that? So I'm sure it will come. And how we set the standards up for, for, for true hoverboards, crack, you know, the speed, the height they'll be allowed to hover. Who knows? But uh yeah, it, uh, it'll be interesting times ahead for sure. As a final thought, Martin, obviously you work for a, a, a campaigning charity in the issue of, of electrical safety. I just wonder how how important are standards for you in the work that you do, you know, arg- arguing for, for, for consumers? Yeah, we, 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 uh, we use standards uh, a lot as part of our uh, product investigations that we carry out, but we're normally uh, using them as uh, as uh, as we believe they may be weak in some regard. So we, we do the testing to to confirm that, that there is a weakness and then we'll push for change in the in the standards committee. So we and other consumer representatives try to work together to push for change. Uh, not always easy if you don't have the evidence behind it. Uh, so, you know, our, our sort of use of standards uh, is is really one of, of pushing the boundary to say that, the standard is perhaps a little behind the times. We'll go and test that out. Uh, we'll even th- include things around foreseeable use that may, again, not be covered in, in the standard. And we'll test certain scenarios out and then say, go and table that because it's it's much easier to be to be heard if you've got the evidence to back that up. You know, if you just raise... A view on a potential issue, then you know it's almost closed the door on your way out. But if you've got solid evidence, it's more difficult to dismiss that. Uh, I suppose that's really. the beauty of it too, as, as well, because obviously the standard could be could be set at a particular level or a particular uh, um, agreement on what good looks like in that particular area. But there's a chance then to revise and review that standard as as life moves on and as as new products enter the market and as the market changes. Absolutely, and the example I would use is we've seen the the, you know, the the rise of electric vehicles, and when they they were first coming out, then it's probably Nis- Nissan were leading the charge there, Nissan Leaf, and you know it's like okay, well, how am I going to charge that up? I'll just 
plug it into my standard UK socket. You know, 13 amps is, uh, is going to be great. And, you know, but they're not really designed to carry sort of maximum 13 amps. For, it takes about 13 hours, it, doesn't it? For using it, it, one of those. Exactly. And, you know, we, we, again, we did some tests in that, in that space and found out that, you know, while, whilst some of the higher quality type uh, plugs and sockets can cope with 13 amps for continued use, some others perhaps were struggling in that space. So, you know, we, we again did some investigations and found that's it's probably not a good idea to use your your standard plug and socket arrangement to charge your vehicle. And you know, it's almost seen as a, an emergency measure now, a bit like your space saving wheel if you have a puncture on your car. You know, so whilst we're saying it's not unsafe, but it's perhaps not a great idea to use that uh, facility for for long periods of time. And, that information that we found, then we fed back in the standards world, and that sort of reflects that situation now. Uh, and also just general messaging from the, the EV manufacturers as well. So what, is it, what does it mean then for Electrical Safety First to be, to be part of CPIN? Yeah, we've been part of CPIN for, for, for a number of years, and we're really pleased and proud to be part of, part of that. You know, we, we bring electrical safety expertise to, to that floor and to work with like-minded consumers, you know, to, to be able to formulate our our arguments and our positions so we can go to go to market, you know, go to standards committees uh, with, with, a, with a combined collective voice. Uh, it is great, you know, but we, we, we don't uh, just sort of provide that information. So CPIN, whoever the representative is to go to the table, we also go to some of those standards committees as well to put the electrical safety first view on that. It gives more weight to the argument really, just strengthens the whole position that we want to get across. Uh, but it's great to see that that consumer movement working together. You know, there's nothing worse than duplication. Uh, and so, yeah, where we can align, uh, it, it, it's great. And, you know, we're proud and pleased to say, provide that electrical safety expertise that we've been doing for a number of years now. Did you know digital isn't necessarily everywhere? The internet has improved consumers' access to a huge new range of goods and services. However, campaigning organisation Keep Me Posted has found that some 5.2 million UK households don't have internet access. So relying on online methods of communication only runs the risk of excluding these consumers. We complete our look at the consumer and digital world with Pete Eisenegger. Pete is currently leading the CPIN work on the ISO Consumer Policy Committee on Privacy by Design. Most of Pete's career has been in the area of digital technology, starting with the design and testing of integrated circuits, through system development, to field service operations, to product management and innovation in products and services and he has extensive experience in European and international standards making through BSI, SEN and ISO. I spoke to Pete about some of the history of CPIN's work on digital, some of the current challenges for consumer representation in standards development in dealing with the fast pace of technological change and service innovation, and also why he believes CPIN's work in the digital space is so vital. But to kick off our conversation, I asked him about his CPIN standards journey. It really started on the digital side of things back in 2008. Um, at that time, I think CPIN as it is now was being established in BSI, and they were looking for some coordinators around particular themes, one of which was digital. And because I have a fairly decent um, 
set of experience before I retired in the digital world. Uh, and I'd had, you know, cont- I had people I'd worked with on standards issues before. Um, I, yeah, great. I was quite keen to take that up. But uh, there were very few people around at the time. There were perhaps a couple of us um, working on digital standards. And it's a field where there's an awful lot of work to do. I think you're right, isn't it? It's one of those areas where, I mean, digital, uh, we're going undergoing digital transformation and that incredible fast pace of, of technological change and sort of service innovation that we're all experiencing. I suppose, what are the challenges for standards development in dealing with that fast pace of change? I, I need to go back to how the 20th century world worked for consumer protection standards, which was based on pretty much hardware products and safety, although a few other issues. Um, And when you design a hardware product, you have production lines that are pretty much committed to that, producing that design. It comes off the end, it sells in volume, and it stays stable as a design for a considerable period of time, unless some major glitch is found and then you get into a retrofit program. But the digital world's just not like that. You have digital functionality and software comes into play. And the word soft (laughs) is very significant. It means it's very easy to change. Um, What that means is that people do significant functional upgrades of their products, perhaps a few times a year, as opposed to hardware products that hung around for years. With the hardware product, you can establish a standard that you test against, you release it to market with an established level of protection, and that does the job. There are all sorts of costs involved in that. With software, you might test it to a certain standard when you launch, and then are you going to spend all that money again on retesting in four or five months' time, or maybe just six months' time? So... There's a whole lot of other issues. I mean, the other thing to say about software is its quality levels are not the same as hardware. Um, If you go digging around the internet for people who've actually researched software quality, you'll find that um, the fault rate per million lines of code is significant in that there are glitches. They're not deliberate faults. They're not really design problems. They're just it's really difficult to track down the accurate working of software in all the complex situations they have to it has to operate in. So that's kind of the nature of the digital world. What does it? Yeah, Karen, no, go on, please. No, you've broken my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered, as a result, as a result of that, then you know what are what are the challenges then for consumer rep- representation in this space? Uh, that's kind of why when I started in '08. Uh, I had to start thinking about what's our best strategy. We've got so few resources to address such a wide range of problems. And there are so many problems and actually so few standards around current at that time uh, addressing them. Can we find a limited set of things we can work on? And basically, we started with privacy. Um, I was pretty lucky in that there was an EU project around that time, it was broadly 2010 to 2012, that was working on the privacy assessment of the radio frequency identification technology. 
this is your contactless payment cards or your uh, key fobs for opening the car remotely and all that sort of thing. Um, and we did a lot of good thinking about the basic issues of technological privacy then, which is kind of at the product level, because we were looking at the real issues of cars being stolen by using certain tech radio techniques to fool the car and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, privacy is more than data protection. Uh, you've got to get quite deep into the security aspects of the design. And data protection really is about doing the right things after you've collected data from the consumer, but it doesn't really address, and in fact, this is a, an explicit exclusion in the regulation, both UK and Europe, that it doesn't cover personal and household use. And yet, that is exactly what a consumer product is. <laughs> so yes, we, we actually had, that was a good opportunity for me to get really stuck into things and start thinking about them. And that led on to producing, sorry. So one of the key things that we did collectively, it was a joint exercise with myself between CPIN and ANIC in Europe, was we thought there's going to be a lot of new people who need the digital background. So we produced a set of uh, consumer privacy guides that are still available on the ANIC site. Uh, I'm pleased to say because they're fundamental. <laughs> And they kind of go over a lot of the ground of what you're looking for in a product for it to be fit for purpose in terms of protecting your privacy. Um, that work. So we're building up here. We're starting to lay some groundwork. But that still didn't address the problem of there are so many product types out there that are going digital. Um, I mean, I've personally done some counting. It looks like there are something like 800 types of product that consumers use. I mean, significant ones, not not really niche ones. And I'm not talking individual products and brands here. I'm talking types of products. And at the moment, about 25% of them are digital or have gone digital. So there was no way we could address a whole range of standards on a product type by product type basis as the traditional world had done for safety standards. There are safety standards for babies' dummies and cooker hoods and things, you know. There was just no way we could address that quickly and easily. So we kicked off work basically with support and, and request from Capolco, which is the consumer arm of ISO basically did a lot of thinking gap analysis and we came out with a proposal for we should address standards that are about a, a product with digital functionality and its whole life cycle because every product has a life cycle that's something that is actually common across all the product types and that, that work started with privacy by design that we kicked off from the consumer arm of ISO based on UK and European work. Um, and that project is in train and uh, should be delivering over the next year or two. So, yeah, fairly happy with that. 
That's fascinating, Pete, there, what you said there about the, the sort of 25% of those 800 products. I mean, how, how long has that taken us to get to 25%? And I suppose the follow-up question is, for the 75%, how long, how long do you think it would take us to, to, to get to sort of 100% of those products being having a digital component? I mean, it's based on things like government list of uh, products that they use to calculate the CPI, the Consumer Prices Index. And you review that and you go, oh, they've missed things off like local government services. <laughs> They're all consumed by products. And they frankly, because it's a prices index, they haven't counted in the digital services that are free, like Facebook and things like that. So you have to add to whatever the government is putting out at the moment. Um, that's something we've been tracking from about the time I started as digital coordinator in 08. And it really, there was very little about that time. So we've gone from just a handful up to about 200 over that 15-year period. Well, a bit less than 15 years, but, you know, you get the rough time scale. Um, and the other problem we've got is innovation. There are digitally-based products around now that there was no equivalent before. It's not like making a fridge smarter. It's just something new and very different. Actually, result of that, I mean, that must be a real challenge then for the for the consumer representation in standards development, because like you say, you're not just, it's not just a new version of an old product. It's something completely and utterly different. How does, you know, what, what are the challenges there for, for consumer representation? I mean, partly it's us deciding where we need to act and using various mechanisms to encourage BSI and others to produce the relevant standards as we did with product lifecycle standard. And it's also being very careful about the standards that we work on. Um, so I genuinely feel that work on a lifecycle standard, which happens to have started with privacy, but a bit outside the consumer CPIN context, but very much part of CPIN's consumer forum, two members of that forum, the National Consumer Federation and the Electrical Safety First, have worked together on starting to lay down some principles for safe digital design of products. So a combination of um, a life cycle standard some core principles for how the functionality needs to behave to be fit for purpose, and then gradually developing more detailed consumer guides in those areas to help people understand what they're looking for as specific requirements and in individual standards. That's kind of where we are at the moment. So, Pete, I'm just thinking, um, of, of, for all the things you've said here around uh, – uh, such a fast pace of change in in in, uh, in technology and the way that there's a digital element to lots and lots of consumer items now. I just wonder, you know, how and why is CPIN is important in this particular space? I, can I change the word important to vital? Absolutely. <laughs> how vital is CPIN <laughs> in this space? <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, let's start at the innovation end. One of the classic things you see with people who've been innovative is – they think they're doing something new for the very first time. And what they don't realize is there are lessons learned from those of us who might have been around a while. <laughs> um, 
And there, there are basic things that need to be addressed or mistakes that need to be avoided. So just ha- often you find the consumer voice at the table is one of the ones with the widest view of the world um, and what's going on in other areas. Uh, so that's kind of the – we tend to bring a certain amount of wisdom to the committees, particularly when it's all about new, bright, shiny stuff. Uh at the practical level, what I've seen in actually participating in standards is that uh, the consumer reps tend to reinforce the good guys around the table when they're putting sensible stuff forward. And it's not unusual for us to be putting forward, say, about 5% of the requirements. Sorry, I may count the numbers, guys, and I have actually done some analysis way back in time on the difference people have made. Um yeah, I mean, and that that small number of extra things that we put in are actually because they're really important to consumers and they wouldn't have been there if we hadn't been around the table. And we also help in terms of confirming what good looks like when, you know, very sensible, good people from industry are putting them forward. Um, in the digital world, I think that's even more essential because you've got much more of people saying, oh, this is bright, new and shiny and it's all very different, and actually it isn't. There are lots of lessons that have been learnt, hard-won lessons over the years that people need to take into account, like dealing with vulnerable consumers, like avoiding unfair terms and conditions. Um, It goes on. My thanks to Liz Cole, Finn Meerstad, Martin Allen and Pete Eisenegger for their contributions to this episode, and to you for listening. The next episode in this series is about consumers and services. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to the BSI Education Podcast now, wherever you get your podcasts. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. just heard a stripped media production 